Welcome to the Behind the Curtain Podcast, your real-world guide to real estate investment and property management. In this episode, we'll be discussing the 1031 exchange, what it is, and the proposed legislation change that will impact property investors. In our neighborhood chat, Brett tells us about his weekend trip in East Tennessee and a new project he's been working on there. We'll finish by talking about the ongoing title theft problem and what steps the courts need to put in place in order to protect homeowners. All right, so let's go through the um, the 1031 exchange proposed changes. Um, now, the only thing I don't know is what are the loopholes? This is I'm about loopholes from 19, been in effect since 1921. That's just what the media has been called. The media has been called loopholes. They're, they're, they're saying they love those loopholes. Let's close those loopholes. The way these guys are making money, let's, let's take that money away from them. Whenever they say close loopholes, that means you're making too much money and we're not going to allow that to happen anymore. That's what I take from it. So anyway, Biden's proposing changing the 1031 rules, which I still don't think he can do it by executive order because it's an impact. It's a tax impact. It's something that's got to be passed through Congress. I don't think it'll happen. There's a couple of Democrats that are kicking back on this $1.9 trillion uh, Biden plan to begin with, and they still don't think it'll even come close to passing. For those of you who don't know, 1031 is uh, the ability for you to, let's say you own 10 properties in, or say you own two properties in California worth a million dollars, and you want to move, I'm going to give you an example, one of my investors is doing this, he's selling that property, he's moving that million dollars to Memphis because he can buy eight homes, producing about six grand a month gross here with that million dollars, versus the two properties he has, they're worth five hundred and four hundred thousand, something like that a piece, which he's getting thirty eight hundred a month out of. So he's almost gonna double his investment by moving that money. Oh here yeah. Because he can buy so much more. So what he's gonna do is ten thirty one is where you sell that property and then you got forty five days, you put it into a ten thirty one exchange with a licensed agent who does 1031, and then you go out and you find like properties 45 days out of identifying, I think it's 60 days from there to close. Uh, if you do that, then the cap, there's no capital gains tax because your profit from those properties is tax exempt as long as you're investing into like properties. So for this gentleman, Michael, he bought these properties for $110,000. So he's going to probably end up pulling... On one in particular, about three hundred and three hundred something thousand dollars out of it profit. Wow! Think of the capital gains hit on that. Oh, so but if he rolls it in ten thirty one and then turns up and comes to Memphis and buys property here, uh, that money's tax exempt. So Biden's plan is to eliminate the ten thirty one tax exemption any for anything over five hundred thousand. Correct. So for an investor like Mike. Um, he would then get the 1031 credit up to 500,000, but the other 500,000, he's going to get eat, get eaten alive. Probably 30% of that money is going to go to the government for taxes. I'm just going to say it right now. I think it's the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. Because if you want to kill the real estate market, that's the best way to do it. Take sure. an investor's ability away to to continue to reinvest in real estate. Um, I think it'll have a, an impact on our business. Um, not for the long term, as we discussed earlier. Long term buy and hold, you'll be fine. But if you're 1031ing money today to buy new property, uh, it's going to be detrimental because now, now I do see a way around this. 
and that is Mike could take these properties and sell them separately at separate times and 1031 each set of them and not have to pay tax on it. But that's just only going to cause more problems in, in the in the long run. So I personally believe it's a bad idea. Well, so let, let's think about what the implications are of this proposal, you know, moving forward. Um, I think implication number one is that investors who are less nuanced, you know, less sophisticated in how they purchase and sell real estate, they're going to think that they should just hold the property that they own and not sell it uh, because they're going to be afraid of that level of taxation. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the first effect of this proposal moving forward is that you're going to see a significant drop in the sale of real estate. I think you're going to short term significant. If if this passes, it's not going to take effect for a little while. So I would say that people that are considering selling and 1031 sure get it done now get it done now but um, well but that that's we were talking about panic yeah the panic selling and the panic buying mm-hmm. that's happening right now and i think that that this is I mean, this this wasn't even on the radar until about a month ago, right? You know, but I believe that this is only going to encourage that panic selling and then that hard drop that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the season this year, what what do you think Biden's? And I don't know. It's probably not even Biden's plan. It's probably someone else's. Sure, plan. sure. Um, what do you think is the the thinking is behind taking the the one industry in this country that's booming? That is, and it's benefiting everybody. It's benefiting renters. It's benefiting homeowners. It's benefiting investors. It's creating more jobs. I mean, there's the rehab industry has gone oh, bananas. I yeah, mean, I got we have great. three contractors I know of that are just looking for contractors. So people will go to work and help. Right. So, what do you think the reasoning is behind crushing that? Is it is it short sightedness, thinking that it's more taxation without thinking of the re, the long term repercussions of it, which is typically what some of these liberals do. They don't think about the long term effect; they think about the short term gain. Or do you think there's something more more well thought out? Which I, I'm going to giggle when I say that. Well thought out in this plan. Sure, I think obviously any legislation benefits somebody. Right. So there's a special interest group and it doesn't matter, you know, what your political stripe is. You're going to have special interest groups that are influencing you to make certain decisions. So um, so I I haven't researched this enough to know which special interest group is benefiting the most. I can tell you that uh, I think it's a He-Man moneymaker haters club. mm, They hate people to make money. Yeah. Well, I think it's that group. It could be. Um, it could also be that uh, I, I think that one of the purposes of this proposal is to increase taxation, mm-hmm. period. And I think it's going to be very, very short lived. I believe that there are strategists and analysts for the federal government who have determined the amount of money that could be made in the short term for the federal government. But and, see, there, we'll see, there. That's the that's the issue I have. Sure. And when I see a, a news reporter talk about the amount of increased tax revenue to the federal government, people have completely lost sight of the fact that we are the federal government. You right. and I are the federal government. Sure. That's our money either way. Right. So when they spend this $1.9 trillion, that's our money. Sure. When they screw up an industry to get more taxation, that is also our money. Right. Now, if I thought for a minute that that money would benefit me, right, I'd probably be a little more open to figuring out a way to to increase taxation without hurting businesses and hurting the economy, right. But that money is going to go into the coffers, and then they're just going to just 
they're just going to spend it. It's not going to go anywhere to help exactly, anything. Exactly. Exactly. I totally agree. So, what's so the point? It, this is this is a part of the one point nine trillion dollar right. bailout bill that Biden has passed. Right. It's, no, it's, it, it hasn't it's been passed. passed Congress. It'll never get passed. Then. Okay. So, so I think the point is he's trying he's trying to present a balanced proposal. Right. So, one of the ways that you can balance all of the spending is through the increase of taxation. Right. So, so right now it's just on paper. Right. Oh yeah. Like I mean, it hasn't hit yet, but there he does have a lot of there's a lot of gravity there's a lot of weight to his decisions he's making right now and and he's he is quite capable of pushing his his vision through but and so to pass in it. but the other thing that i wanted to say is that you know it, it's it's obvious in these spending bills that the people that are paying for it are who are perceived to be wealthy right like when you're looking at the um there's there are a couple of other uh, items of this mike, bill that mike isn't wealthy a point and what Mike's not a wealthy guy. He's he owns a sign company and he's worked hard and been smart with his money. Yeah, he works very right? hard. He didn't right. make a ton of money. He's not rich, but right. he's been smart with his investments. So well, now this this legislation could be the key to undoing what he's spent the last twenty years building sure. for retirement. Sure, because he's he's self employed. He doesn't get he doesn't have an employer dumping money in his four hundred one k and paying right. for his insurance and all right. that bit. Um, but this was his retirement plan. So. It's going to greatly affect a guy like Mike, mm-hmm. big time. He's, it's be, going to shut his investment uh, opportunities down. Sure. Right? I think everything is a matter of negotiation, right? And I think that this initial proposal is Biden's way of saying, I'm going to start this as low as I possibly can at half a million dollars, right? Because there's tons of real estate all all over America. I mean, tons of it. Most real estate probably sells for more than half a million dollars, if you think about it. Yeah. And so, that having said that, this would be an immediate tax on the sale of a property, basically completely liquidating the 1031 exchange benefit. Right. Boom. Gone. Well... Effectively shutting down ten thirty one exchanges completely. Right. And right. I don't think it'll. I don't think it'll get that far. I, I think the someone up in Capitol Hill has to have a sliver of common sense to realize this would be devastating to the economy. Sure. Um, right. And, and it, it won't immediately. Yeah. The coffers in Washington will look good, and and they'll be able to say, "Well, look, we're balancing the budget," and blah blah blah. Right. But a year from now, when all of this starts catching up with us, it, it's going to have, I think, such a detrimental effect in in this market. Sure. And and the real estate uh, industry. And then that will begin to bleed out into all the other industries that feed the real estate industry, appraisers and inspectors and remodelers. It's just going to have a wide reaching effect. So I don't think it's going to pass. I hope it doesn't pass. Um, I wish that we would get away from this thought process that, well, we don't know how to manage our checkbook, so we'll just tax the crap out of everybody and make up the difference. Right. How about we just sit down and be fiscally responsible first, and then if that doesn't work, if you can't balance it that way, then find ways to make up the difference instead of just saying, we're going to spend $10 trillion and then tax the crap out of what we call the rich to pay for it. Um, I just, I, We need to get away from that mentality. I think we're, we're heading down a road right now that we're going to end up, unfortunately, let me ask this question. Has, have we ever had massive tax increases in any sector of our business or America that has had a positive impact on our country and the average American? Is there anything we've done raising taxes on any sector of the world or our country, business, individuals, that has had a positive impact? Do you know not being the recipient of those tax dollars – I would have to say that I, I can't answer that question. I'm just I'm, I'm trying to get to that point because sure. uh, there seems to be this thought that we can just keep raising taxes and, and tax. Uh, I think we me, all look we all look back. Let me answer the question to the best of my ability. I think we all look back at, at the FDR 
what was the the WPS WPA the um, voluntary tax program that was put in place that is still in place today. <laughs> well, sure, but I mean the 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 improvement of infrastructure across the country, sure. the building I of I mean I I've been in these national parks, so have you. Yeah, that were put together by the the jobless, you know. But that was the right idea, right? When you when you tax and bring in another five trillion dollars in taxes, and then you just piss it away, sure, and don't use it for what you know it should be used for the the long-term effects of that is are bad okay so so here's this going back to i'll just kind of finish my point i believe that this bill will be negotiated and i believe that there will be several things that will be stripped out there will be new things that will be added in new bridges with the names of governors and you know your local city hero and and street name changes and everything and so that's just going to happen anyway all right so my gut what my gut tells me is that this concept of taxing 1031 exchanges above a certain dollar amount i think that's going to be in the new bill i think it may end up being over three quarters of a million or over a million i think it's gonna have to get over a million here's the other thing here's the other thing i think there needs to be an income qualifier if you're really going to do this if you're really going to tax a 1031 exchange i think that the the net worth or the um the the person whom you're taxing i don't think it can be done if that person isn't technically considered wealthy and then where do we set that Um, so I believe that there need to be better qualifiers if you're going to tax someone just like we do with income tax right I mean you don't tax me the same way you would tax a a wealthy individual you just because I'm not I'm not wealthy you know but but I'm but I make, you know, I'm taxed according to the amount of money that I make every year. So so the question is, how do we, if, if we're going to increase taxes, how can it be a reasonable increase? I have no faith in Washington because most of those clowns have been there for 40 years. They've never worked a real job. Right. Right. They have people that cook for them and drive them around and they live in this bubble and they don't understand the day to day makeup that we are. Right. The, the average American. So um, and let's face it, today's investors, most of them. The average investor is just an average person. Most right. of the most of the ones that I have, oh, very much. Most of them have day jobs, and they're they're starting their investment portfolios to build retirements for themselves. And I just think that we're, we're making decisions out of haste and out of trying to fill a void that we created, tax money void, uh, without thinking about how it's going to impact the average American. Right. And the average American is going to get crushed through this. Right. It's going to get to the point where people won't be able to afford to buy a home. Investors will stop buying rental properties. It'll have a negative impact. So, call your call your senator today and tell him to you fill in the blank. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if I would definitely say that um, that if this is something that you're opposed to and you are uh, fortunate enough to live in a place that is uh, as also in opposition, then yeah, your senator would should be able to have a lot to say. And now neighborhood chat. My partner, Trey, from Baton Rouge, y'all all met them. You met him when he came up for the, the Investor Summit. Uh, Glenn was supposed to go, but he couldn't go. So we're, uh, we're looking at container homes, which I didn't know a whole lot about them. So we went over to East Tennessee, Gatlinburg, looked at some property in the mountains. And uh, our goal is, is to put, I mean, you can put out container homes, nicely finished homes, cabins, rentals, probably cost to build one out. Uh, 40 by 80 is like maybe $50,000. So, and you can buy the property because it's sitting on the side of a mountain for about eight to $10,000 an acre. So you literally could put in a 40 by 80 tiny home cabin rental for less than a hundred thousand dollars. 
So the ROI is phenomenal. So we went over to look at property. We went and toured a facility of a place that builds tiny homes. Uh, he had a couple of containers he built. And he actually has land next to his facility. It's called the Prairie. And people buy the tiny homes, and he puts them out there, and they pay $300 a month to rent the spot and live in their home. It's on wheels, so when they get done, they can just take off. So he let us go in one of them, a 40 by 80, completely finished out. And I was just, I walked in, I was so surprised at how much room it had. Because I'm thinking it's going to be like this little tiny cramped closet. And it was just amazing. So we're looking at putting two 40 by 80s with a five foot span between them built out. And then putting a 20 footer on top as the master bedroom with a balcony coming out over the first unit. And basically they put flat log siding on the outside of it. Dark stained with, and breaks with the dark blue paint in the middle. It's just beautiful. Unbelievable. Tons of windows. Um, so we're, we're going to be looking at doing a project over there. I think our goal is going to be to put two of them down, put them in the cabin rental program, get up, see what the cash flow is like, the uh, how much, how many days per month it rents, so we can get a, a package together. And we're probably going to turn it into an investor program where investors can say, "Hey, I would love to buy one of those." So we'll build them and sell them to the investor and put them into Summit Cabin Rental. Yeah, you know, for a, for a rental program and let them get a return on it. My goal is to ultimately just end up with one or two of my own that I can go rent and have a place to go that's my goal other people have goals of making money and building this conglomerate tiny home company i have no interest in that i want to have one on my own that's paid for that i can go to anytime i want to yeah i'll I'll love it up there absolutely love it oh yeah yeah yeah. we we were up there um actually march of last year right but like we we were there this is one of my favorite stories in the smoky mountains when donald trump came out and uh you know on television he, came out. he did he right there <laughs> uh he just call your jess there all right yeah he didn't come out of the closet um, he flipped his uh, come over into a side ponytail and said <laughs> i want to be known as i don't know fill in the blank anyway so the, the point that i'm making is this um we we were in the Smoky Mountains uh, 14 months ago. This is what I was getting at. Um, I know that your idea is going to work. And here's how I know it's going to work. Um, and our listeners most likely have not been to the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. Okay, but... Just gorgeous. You, you have been to mountains in California, sure. out west, Nevada, whatever. And you know how these large condominium step-built... Uh, complexes are built up the side of a mountain, mm-hmm. right? To where everybody's got a, a front porch and everybody's got a you know an overlook into the valley below. And those condominiums can be sold individually as timeshares or as private residences or held by you know the the building itself. Um, so that is everywhere in the Smoky Mountains. I mean, you just see these condominiums, and 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 they're in these beautiful locations oh it's just such a beautiful scenery oh my gosh and let me tell you i mean if you don't believe in god you go to the smoky mountains <laughs> and if you sit there and say god doesn't exist there's something wrong with you right. that is i mean it's you get up there it's so beautiful but let me tell you a, this quick story so we go up there we don't know any contractors we're going up there to just look at raw land and go meet this tiny home builder and look at kind of what he does and start understanding the concept so we were supposed to come out yesterday or i'm sorry tuesday so we leave, we get up, power goes off, we go through this horrendous storm, some of the roads wash out, we can't get down the mountain. Water's literally flooding the the bottom floor of the cabin where the pool table and all that's at. I called, uh, I can't remember her name, over at the rental place, Summit, and she says, look, y'all just stay as long as you need to. We had to cancel our meeting, postpone it. Stay as long as you need to. The roads are shut down. Don't just be safe. That's incredible. So keep in mind, we didn't know how we were even going to we didn't even know how to do the foundations here. I'm like, I'm talking to Trey going, I don't even know how to start building one of these. Piers. We've got to find somebody. Yeah. So anyway, the the Summit Cabin Rentals calls back 
and she said, well, I had to cancel the guy that was going to come vacuum out the water and, and, and clean the gutters out and all that. He's going to show up tomorrow. Y'all are staying until tomorrow, so if you would, if you leave, just leave the key in the box if you go into town once the roads open up so he can get in. He came by yesterday morning, walked in, and in casual conversation, he's a tiny home contractor who does container homes, foundation, and land clearing, and engineering for the foundations. Wow. So we found a one-stop shop guy who told us. We gave him the plans. He goes, I'll have you a bid tomorrow on what it's going to cost to finish this out, what the engineering is going to be. Told us all about the water service, the wells, and all that. Um, so we drove out of there and then Trey looked at me and goes man God works in mysterious ways we went there with a sliver of a plan and left there with a solid plan with the builder in place and everything so it was just unique it's like we ended up staying an extra day because of this storm and the water rose being washed out which brought all these other people into our life the next day that we met that helped us take this plan to a bigger like finished idea so yeah it turned out to be a great trip I'm excited about it. There's nothing that's going to happen overnight, you know. It's it's going to be, but it's going to be a unique program. Get a couple of them out and put them with Summit cabin, cabin rentals. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. We need to we would need to run some <laughs> we need to run some numbers. I'll be there. I'll take yeah. Richard. We want to run some numbers. Oh, and our wives. Yeah, rental rent them out. Sorry. Get the cash flow going. Get what our cost to build it was. The the foundation, the wells, and all. Just kind of get everything in line so we know. Look, we can put this out for one hundred twenty thousand dollars. That's cost all in. It's going to rent, you know, 20 days a month on average at this much. Here's your ROI. And then around that, build an investor package. So we can go to investors say, hey, if you want a vacation rental that you can go to when you want to, but produces a 15% ROI, here you go. Um, and then we'll, we'll bring investors in with cash that'll pay to build and build one for themselves. Uh, another idea is we create an LLC and investors just pool their money in and share in the, the revenue and, and sell revenue. Spec. And build them on spec. Yeah. But then those investors get two weeks a year free, just any yeah. cabin we have, just come use it, you know, give it to a customer, whatever you want to do. Right. So we're, we're playing with a few ideas. But we're going to start with probably just two for about six months or so and just till we see the cash flow and the maintenance and the, how, how often they rent. I think, you know, personally, I think we'll be getting a lot of tree huggers from the West who love tiny homes. Uh, I don't want a tiny 500-square-foot cabin. I'm not interested in that. It's going to be 1,200 square feet, a couple of bedrooms and baths. That's probably the smallest we'll go. I mean, I looked at tiny homes that are the size of this room on wheels. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, to me, I'm not driving across country to stay in the Smokies Mountains in a, in a closet. I need a little more room than that. But, they, you know, you can do so much with those containers. The designs well, are just amazing. Remember, too, that we're dealing with a totally different generation. Tiny homes have been around for about 15, 20 years. They're at, huge as, as a popular thing, right. And they're probably, and I've seen some of them, by the way, up in the Smokies. They're really cool. Yeah, yeah, they're super awesome. So, um, Brett, I hate to say it, but we're not the current generation. No. No. So, the the, the current generation who would, you know. If they'll uh, rent one of my tiny cabins. Absolutely. God bless them. Yeah. Come on out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's our plan. 16 acres, probably eventually have about, you know, 18 to 20 total. You know, we're going to have the bigger ones up on the ridge and then down low, we'll do like a little kind of a campground kind of thing where you have eight or nine tiny cabins mm-hmm. close to each other that they can rent for cheap. And some people like the tight community and other people, when I go to the cabin and go to the Smokies, I like to walk out on the balcony and look down into the valley and feel like I'm the only person in those mountains. And that, to me, is the experience of renting a cabin up there. Yeah. But other people like that, you know, I want to be in a community where there's five or six cabins. You get to know your neighbors and hang out and stuff like that. So we're going to try to mix the 16 acres with a, a mixed use. Yeah. Yeah, I think a really cool thing too that you could also do is is have the area around 
your development, which is going to be a small development. We're sure. not talking, it's like, you know, you can have it mapped to where it can mm-hmm. be near, you know, walking paths and stuff like that. Because we, you stayed in the same. I'm going to talk to the, the guy with the meth lab up top and the moonshine still and say, hey, can we use you as a tour spot? There, there you go. <laughs> we'll yeah. T- we'll take, we'll take you up to, uh, take you up to Jay Clambit's uh, moonshine still up at the top of that mountain there. We'll just hire him as security. <laughs> He'll be good security. Yeah, you just give him a couple He's of a big uh, boy. rifles with a uh, That is scopes. a big I I I guess I I've, I've he would be the that guy was the epitome of everything you would think of some big country mountain boy who's grew up in the mountains probably can, you know, live off the land. Oh, sure. Uh probably scary as hell. Just just a tough guy. Yeah. So, yeah, I might talk to him. I, I guess if we decide to buy this property, I'll, I'll have to make the trip up the mountain to his 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 house up there and say hey remember me I'm just letting you know we bought it you can keep your driveway we're right. all cool there because um, last thing I need is for you know him to him to start terrorizing the people in the cabins well you know when you're high you have no idea what you're I doing know. so yeah, it's kind of scary alright well so well, that that's sounds, it that sounds really exciting yeah, I can't wait I'll, I'll be one of your first customers it'll be a fun little project yeah. so we'll see how it goes awesome Okay, so let's get into uh, kind of a strange situation here. Uh, The headline says, the law needs to change. Woman says her property no longer belongs to her after someone filed a fraudulent deed. All you got to do is forge a quick claim deed and file it, and title changes hands. Now, you can only do it if it's a house that's paid for. If it's got a lien against it, it can't be done. So in this story, uh, a woman supposedly finds out that her home was no longer in her name. There's a, there's a forged signature on a deed transferring ownership to uh, another another person. And that's called, what do they call it? That's called... Um, fraud. But no, there's a name for it, the, the deed uh, title fraud or title... I forgot the term they use for it. And this is real. This really happens. I mean, Glenn and I actually dealt with this in 2010 with a couple that came in. They were in foreclosure, and they tried to talk to the bank. And the bank wouldn't talk to them because the deed had been changed to someone else. Mm. Therefore, they were no longer – it was their home. They had the mortgage, or the husband had the mortgage on the property, but the Bank Bank of America refused to talk to them because they'd been communicating with somebody else who transferred the deed and stole title to their property. And he was trying to go through the process of short selling and selling the loan with Bank of America so then he could evict them out of the home that he now owns and take possession of it. Uh, And Glenn and I had to deal with this. So this is a real thing. It happens. But my question is, Aaron, and you can give me your two cents on this. How in the world with all the technology we have today, is it possible for us this not to be caught? I've been in hundreds, thousands of closings, and you're signing 50, 60 documents that go to the federal government, go to, you know, the Patriot Act and transfer of funds and all these things have to happen in order for that deed to be filed uh, and properly accepted and titled transfer. And I'm, I'm just curious out of everything that we've done, how it happens. As I read the article, you know, I, I see that and we're, we're, let's just talk about Memphis here for a second. I see that there are some older ways of recording deeds. Okay. And we, we know, and this is not a slam on our court system, okay, but we know that the, the court clerk, the assessor's office, um, that th- these offices are, are woefully understaffed, um, especially, I would say, in the last 15 years. Yeah, why, and why is that? Um, I think that there are only so many positions that are that are 
that are that are uh, created, you know, for the purpose of recording and uh, the deeds. And and I think that you know the city has grown so much, like doubled in size easily in the last thirty years. You know, with the, if you include the the other uh, municipalities that are around the city, right. the economy in Memphis has exploded. The population of Memphis has exploded. The uh, geography of Memphis has also exploded. One of the things that has happened since the 1970s, really, uh, is that there's been a lot of new construction infill inside of the city border. Right. Okay. And so what used to be, you know, Memphis used to be this sort of like kind of country, like large country town, you know, where it was just a huge land space and there would be communities here and there, but there would be, you know, actual land, often farmland in between each individual community or neighborhood. And what's happened to that farmland is a lot of it has been filled in. And so now what you're seeing in Memphis is just bedroom community after bedroom community after bedroom community, just stacked side by side. So, I think that the city offices, which actually govern and process the recording of these deeds, haven't grown uh, enough to be able to handle everything. I think they have now. And I think that they've also integrated technology uh, into those offices in order to be able to to verify and to check certain things. So one of the things uh, deeper into the article that I read is that there are a couple of representatives that are looking to change the law and the requirements of the persons who are filing new deeds, like quick claim deeds, or uh, there's another one I can't think of that you can probably think of, Brett, where uh, you know name changing uh, on these deeds occurs. And so, uh, and I'll just read from the article here. Um, there is a, an Antonio Parkinson, uh, who's a Tennessee state representative, and he is suggesting that the registrar's office uh, be provided more authority to, to verify the property filings before they're actually recorded. Okay, so what's, what's happening is that there's information that's not being verified before these deeds are recorded. So right now, apparently, uh, it's not a requirement of an employee at the assessor's office to uh, check an ID. I don't know if you knew that. No, I did not. Okay, so apparently you can actually change the name on a deed or submit uh, changes to a deed without having your identity verified. So they're looking to move to something that we all know and are very familiar with these days called two-step authentication or two-step verification of the identity of the person making that change. What that is going to do is it's going to slow down the deed recording process. Right. Okay. Well, now they're doing it online. Right. The title companies who have set up an account and can do it online. You know, maybe the answer would be for them to eliminate, if you're good at fraudul- you know, fraudulently signing a deed, and, and uh, I guess you could figure out a way to file it online, too. I guess that wouldn't make sense. Well, that's where the two-step authentication right. would come into play. Right. Like, so you would have to, you know, like with DocuSign, obviously we verify the email address of the sender and uh, we verify their identity. Um, But even DocuSign is is relatively light. Um, It it may be required that everything like I see my understanding is it is required that it be notarized now. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at deeds, just you and I look at deeds all the time on online and right. we, we see the scanned images and there's always a notary's stamp. Right. Well, so there are some notaries out there that are a notary. They would they put a notary stamp on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, without truly verifying the documentation is correct. It's, it's simple for someone to go get a fake ID and go to a notary and get it stamped. You know, I, I don't know what the true answer would be, but I, I know they've got to figure out how to stop it. I think it falls on the county courthouse. Right. For them to put steps in place to prevent the fraud from happening, because 
they're the ones that are doing the transferring of title and recording. So therefore, they I think they need to spend the money and time to put those those steps into place. I don't know how you would do that other than possibly doing what the banks do and getting people's thumbprint, get their identification, get a copy of it, and have them put that little black thumbprint on the deed itself so that when it comes out to be fraudulent, you've got someone's fingerprint that you can run. Take the postal service. When you want to forward mail, even they know how to send out a packet to both addresses to say, hey, did you request this? You know, the county could have a similar situation that when a... a a deed transfer or whatever is triggered, it sends out a mailing to the actual physical address that they have to respond to within a fixed period of time, otherwise the whole process doesn't go through. Yeah, I think it's steps. I think so. So for the listener, what uh, our producer Richard was suggesting is that there be uh, more uh, verification processes added to the deed transfer process. And and I honestly would agree with that. I think, um, you know, like right now with closings, uh, when, when there's an escrow, there is a wire confirmation uh, email that is given to the buyer mm-hmm. to make sure that they are confirming where the wire is going. The closing attorney is also involved in that. So the, the lender receives that notification. Right. Um, the buyer sees the notification. The closing attorney agrees and, and says it's going into their account. I think they're the ones that actually originate. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the, the point is right now there is a new fraud system that's put in place where they're verifying by email and, and alerting the party, the the current owner, you know, the name in which the deed is in, um, that there is a change that is about to occur with that deed. They did say that last year there were 34,000 property transfers. Mm-hmm. That is, that, you know, for a small town like Memphis, and let's say that the, the county assessor's office has uh, 35 employees, that's a thousand property transfers per employee. They don't say in the article if these were electronic transfers or if they were mail transfers or physical showing up, filing the paperwork at the courthouse. But in two of those steps, even on the electronic transfers, they could require someone imprint their thumbprint below their signature. Sure. Right? Title attorney, Chris over here, could be like, all right, sign right here. And then the final page, attestation of who you are, you sign it and you put your little black thumbprint underneath there. And now when it's filed, they've got your thumbprint. So if you're not who you say you are, the thumbprint's going to tell them who you are. So if there's a problem, they now can track back to who committed the fraud. Right now, they don't even know because, you know, some guy, Tom Smith, signs a deed, has it transferred to some LLC in, you know, India. And there's there's nothing you can do to change that because you'll never try, trace down who has it. But that'd be a way to do it. Right. Um, or if they physically come in. When I go to the bank and cash a check at a different bank other than my own, that's what I do. I take my thumb and put it in a little ink and put it on the check. So now they've got my thumbprint. Well, and, it, you know, I think I, I like and that idea. if the idea. FBI doesn't come storming in when I do that, I walk out with a sigh of relief. Right. Well, you know, one of the things I really like about the physical presence required um, is that it it really will slow down and require physical identity. I mean, you're going to have to be real a really good con mm-hmm. uh, in order to be well, able you to. Did, if, if you use the thumbprint method, mm-hmm. anybody can get an ink pad and put thumbprint on a document. So when you scan a document, send it to Shelby County for, for, for recording, which is what Tile Assurance does. They do it online. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the, the acting parties have imprinted their thumbprint, it's on the document when it scans over. It's now in the record. So uh, instituting something simple like that may detour some of these uh, these con men. 
Right. It's just easier to get a job. Well, so my last point on this, um, you know, the moment, and it, it really felt like the within weeks of uh, COVID shutting down in-person travel and in-person transactions, right? Like everything was done electronically. We began to see crime, property crime happen because nobody wanted to be out. Like we all thought that this was going to be the zombie virus that was going to destroy humanity. Right. And so no one would get out. The banks were all closed. You know, there was no in-person banking. Everything had to be done, you know, by phone. Um, we know that the, uh, the courthouses were closed, right? So in order to transfer deeds, it had to have been done electronically for a, a I don't, several, several months, yeah. right? And so opening that in-person back up is crucial for controlling this. And it also happened to be in the hottest real estate market in, in American history. Right. In any tw- any given 12-month period. But yeah, there has been, I mean, this is about fraud, people. So there was there a lot of fraud? Was there electronic fraud because of this, because of COVID, because of not being able to look, you know, people face-to-face mm-hmm. because of the notary that you're working with, maybe not being able to sit across the desk from you, hold your physical ID and verify, yes, this is or, who you are. Or you're a con man and you just go get your notary certification You're fake notary yeah. yeah and you do it yourself right. i mean it's listen not I, that hard I when, when they say get it notarized i get it i'm not taking it away from these folks that are notaries that you know work in banks and courthouses and so forth uh, it's an important position and title to have but getting a notary stamp just a notary stamp in my opinion is no way a good safeguard anymore because yeah 50 years ago it was probably a good safeguard today Anybody can get a notary stamp and stamp it on a deed and sign and forge a name to it and file it. It's very. I'm sure it's. It's my from sure. my perspective. It seems very simple to do. Sure, sure. So I think there just needs to be other mechanisms put in place. One last thing on this uh, point for me is that Memphis is a very unique community. It's a very unique city here in the United States. And one of the things that makes it unique is it is a community full of normal people. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Well, no, just follow me on this. Richard lives here. Well, he chose to live here, though. I was born here, and I would consider— I'm not normal. That's what I'm saying. I said, don't go that far. I said, Richard lives here. This is an area where I feel like government needs to be um, um, encouraged to control fraud. Um, because this is a, I mean, if you drive down this, if you take a 30 minute drive from one side of our city to the other, you're going to see people that are the last thing they're thinking about is whether or not they're being taken advantage sure. of or impersonated yeah. by someone else. They're not even thinking about it. They're just trying to get their bills paid. They're trying to go to work. They're trying to, you know, they, they hope that the mail shows up, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, I would, I would say that this is uh, an area where local government definitely needs to step in and say, Hey, we're going to, re- we're going to make this system more complicated because we want to protect the average citizen. Well, I think that falls down on the Shelby counties. Is it the assessor's office that does the recording? Yeah. Okay. Well, then it falls on his shoulders. Sure. And fraud under his watch is his responsibility. It's sure. his job to take his annual budget and and put mechanisms into place to protect the citizens that are filing transfer of deeds and titles at his office. Right. It shouldn't fall on anybody but him. And maybe with this story that would spur him into action to try to look for. Uh, you can you can you can hire and contract a a, a cybersecurity company to help put things in place to prevent fraud uh, and do verifications, different types of verifications. And um, it's got to be coming from somewhere. So, I mean, it could be as simple thing as an email verification. Well, All yeah. of a sudden you get an email from, you know, some guys in California on a house here in Memphis 
then that shows throws up a red flag. You contact right. the homeowner and say, hey, by the way, there's a deed being filed from California under your name with your signature. Right. There's what there's ways to do it. I think they just need to the politicians need to get away from being the stars at the top of the chain and, and loving their social life as as whoever they are and get involved and do their job and protect the citizens. Well I think that's exactly what they're gonna do. And I and these are Tennessee state representatives that are that are suggesting a state law change. Yeah. Uh, so I'm once again, you know, yeah, we we like it when small government, when our local government uh, state and, and city governments and county governments are doing things to protect citizens. So, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Thank you for listening to Behind the Curtain Podcast, your real world guide to real estate investment and property management. Be sure to subscribe at BehindTheCurtainPodcast.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Enterprise Property Management's real estate services, please visit us on the web at epmrealestate.com. This has been a Sound Ideas Group production for Enterprise Property Management, Inc.